Connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired, it's why we're here. So she woke up, woke up from where she was, lying still. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. Step on a steam train, step out of the driving rain, maybe. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. Sweet the sin, than taste. So these folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others because as it turns out we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly and the last was they had connection and this was the hard part as a result of authenticity they were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were they fully embraced vulnerability they believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And today we want to talk about uh, a little bit about vulnerability. So I shared a video with you, Bill, because a book recently came in the mail. Uh, my lovely wife, Lindy pre-ordered it by Brene Brown. It's her latest book and it's terrible. The title is eluding me, but it's about, basically it's about the only way that we, we thrive in life is falling down. So how do you get back up once you fall down? Because if you're really being your full self, um, you, you kind of, you inevitably fail. But Brene Brown kind of became a, almost like a household name in a lot of pockets of our culture in, I think, 2010 when she gave a TED talk, which was has been downloaded 20 million times, called "The Art of Vulnerability," and I rewatched it recently because it's been connecting with some other stuff I've been reading, and I was blown away. I watched it twice, and each time it's about a 21 minute talk, 
And I looked up at, at the second time I listened to it over a couple of days and I couldn't believe it was already at 18 minutes. I thought it was like seven or eight minutes in. She just has that kind of both kind of the way she presents and, and the depth of, of what she says is, is really profound. So Bill, as a, as a first time listener today, what was your first impression when, when you watched that Ted talk? Yeah, my first impression was that 20 million people beat me to it. <laughs> it was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I'm, I'm not, that's not the only thing I'm behind uh, on a bit, but, uh, but I thought it was, it was a beautiful talk and, uh, you know, I identified with, with way too much in it. I mean, there's a sense where I think you and 20 million other people. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, there's a sense where, um, you know, my, her, her take on shame, the idea of, you know, the idea that uh, in some levels we all deal with shame. Shame is something that is at the core of all of us. And, and a lot of the issues around shame uh, keep us from vulnerability. You know, either the fear of shame or, 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 or the uh, fear of being found out or whatever. And uh, I thought that was really, really fascinating because I think um, – I, I, on one level, the idea of a shame ethic is a pretty, pretty primitive ethic. It's, you know, it's, it is the ethic of the village of the tribe. And, you know, there are still, you know, uh, it's still alive and well. I mean, uh, not only in, you know, back villages where we, you know, these horrible stories of these young girls getting stoned, uh, because, uh, they may have been violated and because they've shamed the family. Uh, they put her to death. I mean, so it's a double, you know, the double victim thing. But I think there are there are large segments of of Christian communities that really operate out of a, of a shame mentality. It's funny, both fundamentalists do it. Uh, the people with really these stringent kind of of um, moral codes, and and liberal groups have their own kind of shaming as well. Um, to me, there's 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 one thing that all Christians have in common, all Christian groups have in common, is they're always finding new ways to nullify the grace of God. And mm. um, and in some levels, this call for vulnerability reminds us that we have to rise above that. In some levels, our own encounter with ourselves, uh, genuine encounters with other human beings, and ultimately, the only way that we can really receive the gift of God is to be vulnerable about who we are, to be honest ourselves honest before others and honest before God. That's, that's a risky thing for many of us. Yeah. You know, I read an article recently, I think it was in Christianity today by Andy Crouch. And Andy says that we've moved from a guilt culture to a shame culture. And that while people maybe were more promiscuous morally, there's still this, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer thinks his guilt is about I, I did something wrong. It's like feeling bad about an an act, whereas shame is feeling bad about who you are and what you lack. And you know, there's so much exclusion, especially with social media. Like it's 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 almost this. It's not just in conservative liberal. It's all over and every. It's it's almost a mass tribal phenomenon. Yeah, it, from, around. Yeah, from a history of moral development, it would be a move backwards. Yeah, what I found was interesting about Brene Brown's talk is she said, you know, she was a, a social work researcher and she was researching 
connection. And she said, you know, it's funny. You talk to people about connection and they talk about their stories of being disconnected. Right. We talk to them about love and they tell stories about broken heartedness. And she said, the thing that we yearn for is connection to know and be known. And the thing that consistently stands in the way is shame. Yeah. And, yeah. Huh. And then she says, you know, she has this breakdown doing all the shame research. It, you know, winds up in therapy. And she realized that the thing that, that, uh, that connects us to the deepest things in life and love and community and really human flourishing is, is at, at the crossroads with shame and its vulnerability. But, you know, but maybe part of it too is that, you know, we can, we can, we know God more by what God is not as opposed to what God is. You know, we can, you know, in terms of because ultimately to say who God is, is a holy mystery. And, and so in some levels, we know we can name connectedness more by its absence than by its presence. You know, sometimes there's when we, ha- when we're, mm. when we are connected, when we're in the middle of, of really mm. a, a good relationship, for instance, we kind of take it for granted, you know, and, and, and or, or maybe we don't take it for granted, but sometimes we just don't, when you ask, well, what makes you work as a couple? You don't always know. You, it's, it's like, well, you can't really put in words. It's a, it's a phenomenon. It's a chemistry. You can give, you can give kind of, well, I like this characteristic about this person, or I don't like this characteristic. Uh, it's funny. You can, it's easier to talk about something when it's in its absence and in its presence. Yeah. I, I think that that may be part of it too, that, uh, that she found in her research, because I, I do know there are lots of people who, who do feel connected to God, to the church, to individuals, to family, and my guess is a lot of them sometimes would have trouble saying exactly what makes that work. Yeah. And one of the things she says that, that in her research, that the only difference between, I think she said the people that felt loved and the people that didn't like self-reporting that she could find is the, the people that felt loved somehow felt worth loving that there was, and that's what she connects to vulnerability. They thought, that that somehow that she 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 has this great definition of courage and she goes back to the etymology of the word and she says that courage is originally meant uh, the ability to be your whole self with 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 kind of warmth and vigor you know yeah. with kind of throwing yourself into being yourself like and I think that that but that's vulnerable because what happens when you when you're yourself and people don't like it or people you know, exclude you. And, and then it, it, it's, it's like, it's all those, the courageous moments, right. Where we actually, I think our, uh, our, our true selves or these grace moments also are always on the edge because they're tied up with vulnerability of being shaming moments. Too. Well, you know what I find what's, well, you know, what's interesting. I, I was just thinking of, you know, my, um, my parents really have a good marriage and, um, and it's something, but it would not be one I would want, but, it, but it's, but it's something that they've grown. And I, and I can remember, um, as an adult when I fully appreciated it, you know, and I, I, you know, I think there were times that just because we're different people and, uh, you know, there are different kind of roles in the relationship that I always didn't understand. But, um, my mom thought she was going to get a terminal diagnosis or at least a very serious diagnosis. And, uh, I was present when they found out it wasn't. And, 
I realized, I guess it was a, it was a, it was, you know, it's like this holy moment you have, you know, often as pastors, you have them when, you know, in, in all kinds of terrible situations. But I had one of those moments with my parents and I wasn't part of it. I was just an observer. And so in some levels, how more vulnerable can you be when you're, you're not sure whether or not you're going to find out whether or not you're going to live or die and how much they loved each other. And my dad is not someone who shows a lot of emotion. Um, but the vulnerability at that moment and the tenderness and the holiness of it made me, uh, it, it, it gave me an insight into a relationship that I realized, you know what? I don't really, I don't really know what goes on with my parents. And, and it was a powerful thing to see that happen. Yeah, and those are moments, right, that open up life. Op yeah, open up possibilities to really give, receive, love, know, and be known. I mean, I think which is Brene Brown. Her research is we want these moments. You know, like people, we we want these deep connections that you can build long-lasting relationships on. But that's just it's challenging to. I think some of it is. Uh, the way the law works, and by the law, I mean anything that kind of it presents itself as sort of an imperative that you've got to live up to. Uh, when we fail at it, when when it, it when when we kind of when it stings us, oftentimes I think we say, "Well, that part—it's like a mini suicide. That little part of me is going to get kind of boxed up, and I'm not going to bring." That part of me, it's almost like when you, when you're first in little league and you get hit by that first pitch. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just never get no, over it. You, no. you have a tough time getting in the batter's box. And I think so many of us are walking around. Uh, and I love what she said, like about shame. It's the thing that everybody hates talking about, and yet the less you talk about it, the more you have. Yeah, because no. its power is in this, in the repressing the secret and sort of kind of trying to sit on the pressure cooker and keep the lid down. Yeah, I, it's true. I remember years ago being in this Bible study. Um, this is back. I was a Young Life area director, Young Life staff person. And uh, we had this Bible study of uh, folks that a lot of us were doing youth ministry together. A lot of us were going to the same church. And, you know, we were working with poor kids. It was a, it was a wonderfully time. And I remember my, my uh, good friend and colleague, Don Baker, who I love dearly and 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 he's someone who's always been pretty honest. I mean, one thing about Don from the beginning, he was always very open about his struggles. Uh, that's something I've always admired by about him. And and he he's remained consistent over the years that way. And he's a um, pastor at a uh, helping lead a large church in central Pennsylvania. And you know, he was he would just share. I mean, he was open about his doubts and his struggles. And and he started just sharing about just incredible doubt that he was going through. And, and he was just doing it in this honest way. I mean, it was kind of, it wasn't emotional. Well, this young woman in the group just started bursting out crying almost hysterically. And of course, you know, he and I are guys and we look at each other and say, oh my gosh, what do we do? We, <laughs> you know, oh no, if someone's being vulnerable in front of us, we need to get in reverse here real quick. But when she finally got control of herself, she said, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. Hmm. And I've heard that, you know, you and I both have heard that. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Or people come into your office and say, you know, are having some sort of struggle 
And they're going, you know, I'm sure we're the only people struggling with this in, in the church. And I, you know, I don't, I always would give us a, a knowing smile because obviously you can't give up other confidentialities. And, uh, but I could generally say, no, you're in the majority right now. And, uh, you don't know what's going around. You don't know what's going on in the people's lives around you. You know, I, I do think the church in a lot of ways, the church, though it's accused of being a judgmental place and, you know, it, it certainly there's plenty of evidence of it doing that. But I actually believe that, that communities of faith have a much better opportunity to be grace-filled places because um, I didn't read um, Andy's article, but I do think with permissiveness as part of our age, that it is also a remarkably graceless age. And, yeah. um, you know, where, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was listening to on, on, uh, on ESPN radio, them castigating a football coach because he had too much to drink at a school activity. Now, again, I know there's supposed to be examples, but a football coach who maybe drank a little too much. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, what, what, what's, uh, what has, uh, has, have we become here? So, um, again, I'm not condoning boorish behavior. I'm just saying, my gosh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> every, and by boorish, you mean like Bill Boar like? No, you mean- no, no. Okay. I tell you, Jesus couldn't get, I mean, Jesus couldn't get away with what he got away with in John 8 nowadays. You know, he, he, yeah, when that's he true. said, you know, you were a sin cast the first stone. My gosh, there have been an avalanche. Yeah, everybody was just thrown it. Yeah, everyone would, yeah. They would, have, they would have taken that as an invitation. Yeah, I that know. Would have been an invitation. I, I know. And, uh, yeah, they wouldn't have had to have been devout Jews. They could have just been people who were, you know, trolling on, on, uh, on Facebook. So I, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I do think this idea, I think her message was powerful. It's a powerful, uh, um, it's a powerful story. I mean, I, I listened to another follow up, uh, little, um, video clip of her. Um, and, uh, she says she doesn't quote Bible verses. She quotes song titles and she quote, uh, uh, you know, that line from, uh, uh, Cohen's hallelujah, which is a beautiful line about what love really is the broken hallelujah. <laughs> but I, I actually think that, uh, we as Christians have a great opportunity <laughs> to, to quote some, uh, some really important, uh, Bible verses in response to this graceless age we live in, like judge and you, that you not be judged. As you judge, you shall be judged. As you forgive, you shall be forgiven. Um, yeah. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and you will be lifted up. I think, um, I think we have an obligation not only to try to be vulnerable in our lives, but we have an obligation to be the kind of people that allow other people to be vulnerable with us. Yeah. I want to share a passage from... Uh, the great Frank Lake, who was a psychiatrist uh, in the six, I mean, he died in the early eighties. Uh, but he wrote a book called Clinical Theology, which was about sort of the, it's a thousand pages long, so it's not a beach read. Although it would sort of get you buff just carrying it back and forth to the beach. But, <laughs> but there's a page in the introduction, a paragraph in the introduction. I think for me, really. It gets at the heart of what Jesus says when he's when he says if you know if you want to try to keep your life you're going to lose it if you kind of preserve it you're going to lose it but if you if you lose your life you're going to gain it and I think if you're inside the church you can think what I mean 
how, how does that work? How would that be a grace thing? How would that be a thing? And if you're outside the church, maybe it wouldn't make sense to you. But I think Lake kind of in a similar vein of Brene Brown shows how vulnerability is is an invitation to the fullness of life. He says, the natural man in us tends to reject the paradox that mental pain and spiritual joy can exist together in us without diminishing either the agony of the one or the glory of the other. The whole personality may be afflicted by a sense of weakness, emptiness, and pointlessness without diminishing in the least our spiritual power and effectiveness. This is possible because Christ is alive to reenact the mystery of his suffering and glory in us. So far as our own subjective feelings are concerned, any inner directed questioning of our basic human state may produce the same dismal answer as before. The cupboard is bare. While we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns it into a satisfactory channel. Um, that's powerful. You know, you, as you were reading it, it reminded me of the story of St. Francis. It may, be, it may be an apocryphal story, but there are a lot of great apocryphal stories about St. Francis. But uh, there was this dedication of one of the uh, uh, little churches that he had helped <laughs> rebuild uh, you know, re remember he got a vision from God, rebuild my church. And so initially he took it literally and was, 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 <laughs> was, was fixing these abandoned chapels, but he, he, he realized that it was a more symbolic, uh, um, call. But, uh, there was this rededication of his chapel or church that he had helped fix or build or raise money for. I don't remember. And there was a local bishop that was giving a, a speech and, and this is a point where Francis had been gaining a lot of popularity. They hadn't taken the order from him yet, so he's kind of at the pinnacle of his popularity and and his influence in with the order. And in the bishop's sermon, he kept saying, you know, finding ways to insult St. Francis. You know, he said, and we want to thank Francis because he's a symbol or he's a sign of how God has chosen the least and the smallest. And, you know, he goes on and on with all these kind of backhanded compliments. And Francis's followers are getting upset because of this bishop in, you know, insulting their leader. At the end of the bishop's sermon, Francis rushes over, falls at his feet and says, thank you, Father. You are the only man who speaks truly of me. Hmm. So, I invite everyone in our graceless age. When it, I love that 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 phrase. What Lake says, like when we look in the cupboard of humanity, right? When you know you're on the first date or the job interview, or you're at the country club trying to pretend you have the ideal family when you don't, because there is no normal. It's just a setting on the washing machine, and and all these moments where we're kind of we feel like we're kind of trying to keep a lid on the pressure cooker. And, we open up to see our human assets and the cupboards bare. I love what he says. Yeah. When the bottom is knocked out of our humanity, it's an opportunity because the love and energy of God can be all in all and flow in us, through us to a world that needs it. And we can delight in sharing in those moments.
That's beautiful. And I would like to say that you have always been a grace figure for me, brother. And feelings mutual. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift. The baffled king composing strong but you needed proof you saw her bathing on the roof her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you and she tied you to her kitchen chair and she broke your throne and she cut your hair and from your lips she drew It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Well, there was a time. Remember when I moved in you And the holy dove was moving too And every breath we drew is hallelujah 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 Hallelujah
Maybe there's a God above But all I've ever learned from love Was how to shoot somebody who outdrew you And it's not a cry that you hear at night It's not somebody who's seen the light It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah 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 Hallelujah